0: Sound Opinions is supported by Goose Island, pairing beer and music since 1988. Goose Island Beer Company, Chicago, Illinois. Listen critically, enjoy responsibly.
1: There had been abuse in my family, but it was mostly musical in nature. Any of this lover's lament crap. I want something peppy, something happy, something up-tempo. I want something snappy.
2: Oliver Sacks devoted his life to making sense of the most confounding instrument of all, the human brain.
3: I'm Jim DeRogatis. And I'm Greg Cott. Today, we pay tribute to Dr. Sacks by revisiting our conversation with him about music and its effect on the mind. Then it's time once again for parents to rejoice. It's back to school time. Greg and I will play more of our favorite
2: songs about going back to school. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions.
3: you listening to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott here with Jim DeRogatis, and on August 30th, the brilliant urologist and author Oliver Sacks passed away from cancer at the age of 82. Now, he was best known for books like The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat and Awakenings. That book was adapted into an Oscar-nominated film in which Robin Williams played Dr. Sacks treating people who suffered from Parkinson's disease. But he was also fascinated throughout his life by music and its power over the mind he was a strong advocate for the use of music therapy. Today, we remember Dr. Sachs by revisiting a conversation we had with him in 2007. He spoke to us about his book, Musicophilia, which explored the connection between music and the human brain. That's right, Greg. We started
2: our conversation with Oliver Sachs by discussing how music can reach people and their brains in ways that many other therapies can't.
4: Well, that's certainly so with some people and some patients. With these... Uh, Parkinsonian people whom back in the 60s whom I still see people like this often they can be almost motionless but they tend to have difficulty moving fluently and sometimes moving at all or speaking at all unless there's music there and music can give them uh, its go, its flow, its rhythm and whether the music is provided by a living therapist or by a, a tape or an iPod so long as the music has has a good time structure, a good beat, a good rhythm, then this will give its rhythm and its tempo to the people with Parkinson's who otherwise really don't have any rhythm or any tempo.
2: So it's, the music serves as sort of a lifeline.
4: Yeah, a lifeline, a pacer.
2: And that's what this book is, a collection of wonderfully written and very moving anecdotes of patients that you got to meet and spend time with who in some way were given a lifeline by music or or, or music was their connection to the world. I had first read in The New Yorker, preceding the book, the piece about the uh, conductor.
4: Yeah, Clive.
2: Tell us about Clive, if you will.
4: Well, um, Clive was a, you know, an, an eminent sort of musician and musicologist until in his 30s he he got this terrible attack of, of encephalitis from, from the herpes virus. And this is mercifully very rare. But in, in his case, it really wiped out the memory parts of his brain while leaving everything else intact. So he remained highly intelligent and with his normal personality, but really, as you say, unable to remember events for more than a few seconds. So this was sort of totally disabling, because it meant he was out of it, until it was discovered that there was one remarkable sparing and that his musical abilities, his ability to sing, to play the piano, to play the organ, to improvise, to conduct a choir, were absolutely intact. And and it is most amazing to sort of see this man conduct a, a huge choir, an orchestra, at an absolutely professional level and sort of turning to the different singers or the instruments, absolutely knowing it all, but then within a few seconds, finishing, having no memory that he's done this.
2: It's as if for, for this man who for whom time stops constantly every seven seconds, the only time when it continues is when the music is playing.
4: Uh, yes, and basically he's he's only organised in in action and and in in the music. You might, in fact, ask him if he knows say a particular piece of music, and and your sentence won't have much meaning for him. Or he'll simply say no. But you give him the first note, or, or put the score in front of him, and immediately he's he's off. But he only has memory in the moment, uh, what's called procedural memory sometimes, and no memory of events or of facts, or very little.
3: It's it's almost like he's tapping into some kind of higher consciousness. And yet, doctor, you also talk about the fact that you can you know you can spot the brain of a professional musician. I mean, there's a there's a telling difference. You know, if you opened up the skull of a musician as opposed to just a person who was not one, you, you could tell the difference, right?
4: Um, Yeah. Well, you actually don't have to go as far as, as yeah. opening up the skull. You, know, <laughs> you, you, you can you, just you, take an x-ray, it, I guess, right? Um, yeah. You know, there, there are all sorts of things, um, um, MRIs now and sort of which give beautiful brain images. Yeah. yeah. And, and it's actually very remarkable because you really can't tell the brain of an Einstein from, from anyone else's. But being a music or being a musician does seem to alter the brain quite visually. Visibly and grossly, so that all different parts of the brain—the big band of white matter called the corpus callosum between the two hemispheres, and the auditory parts of the brain, but also visual parts and motor parts, lower parts like cerebellum—they're all enlarged. And you can immediately say this: this was was probably a musician. Although, of course, that leaves open as to whether he's a musician because he had that sort of brain, or whether he developed that sort of brain Mm -hmm. through music. And the uh, the answer simply is is a sum of both.
3: Yeah, that's interesting. So you're saying that you, you may not necessarily be able to train your brain to be a musician's brain if you, you may be just born with that. But we're not certain what the answer is yet.
4: To some extent, you can train it. I mean this is clear with people who have a year of Suzuki Training and there was recently, in fact, I just mentioned this in the enlarged paperback of the book. There's been a beautiful case history recently of a um, a man who was um, frightened off music when he was a boy. He was told he couldn't sing, he had no ear, he wasn't musical, and but thirty years later he decided to take singing lessons as an experiment and to get brain imaging before and after a year of singing lessons. And to everyone's surprise, especially his own, he did rather well with the singing lessons and joined a choir. And in fact, his brain shows quite amazing changes which developed, you know, in, in middle life. And so even people who imagine they're unmusical and who have got got their 40s or 50s or 60s can, in fact, often you know, develop musicality and the changes in the brain which go with it.
2: Well, and you do tell another anecdotal uh, case history in in the book of the man who was hit by lightning in in a phone booth and and came out to to suddenly find himself incredibly musically prodigious.
4: Um, uh, Yeah, um, this was a man who had had very little musical interest or apparently talent before, and he seemed to become transformed, you know, whatever the lightning bolt or the shortage of oxygen because he had a cardiac arrest for 30 seconds when he was hit by lightning. Whatever it did, it, it did something to his brain. You know, he now gives concerts and, and is um, is very much in love with music.
2: It's, it's almost too good to be true. You know, you're hit by lightning and all of a sudden you're this hmm. great talent.
4: Um, uh, yeah well, well you know when he first performed and told his story, half the audience had fantasies that, that they too would like to be struck by lightning <laughs> but, but it, 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 it's not a good thing on the whole. <laughs>
2: Well, Doctor, I know that as, as an author and as a scientist, you try to avoid the grand conclusions. Musicophilia is a collection of, of case studies and anecdotes that try to tell human stories of people who've had these experiences. But, you know, I also couldn't help thinking as I read it that every educator in the country ought to read this at a time when, when music education is sliced, it's the first thing to go from every budget in every school system. It's like, you know, what you're saying again and again and again is we we don't even begin to have any inkling of an understanding about what music does to the brain. But we sure are getting a lot of examples of of that it does very powerful things. <laughs> it would not seem to be a good idea to not teach kids how to play.
4: Yeah, well, I, I've, I've sort of put this point even more strongly now on the paperback. And I really mm. think it, it it needs to be part of uh, of education and primary schools at least to be available. And whatever it does, it's, it's fun. Yeah, and yeah. it's. As a physician who mostly works with older people i 've sort of seen the therapeutic powers and various diseases and disorders but it's but i think it 's its educational powers um, i'm i 'm no believer in the so called Mozart effect, which I think got described about fifteen years ago and misinterpreted uh, the notion then being that a little bit of Mozart could increase one 's i q and all sorts of uh, Intellectual abilities. I don't think that's the case, but real engagement with music and listening carefully, or, or trying to play an instrument, this can undoubtedly not only increase musical ability, but you know, but powers of attention and and probably other abilities. So it it needs to be part of one's education and early, preferably.
3: It, it leads to a question about the quality of the music. I mean, you talk about the restorative power of music. Is there any connection between that and the actual quality of the music. I mean, have you ever seen bad music uh, have a powerful effect on, on somebody uh, in that sort of way? And I guess um, the question is, what is good or bad music? What is your definition yeah. of that? This is obviously
2: – obviously, doctor, this is what we struggle with in yeah. our livelihoods. You um, know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs>
3: um,
4: well, uh, well, certainly, say, to come back to the beginning, for the, the, the people with Parkinson's, it's rhythm which counts, uh, whether, it, whether it's good music or bad music in other ways. Is sort of irrelevant. So 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 long as it has a rhythm, which will give him, give him some, some organisation and time. But otherwise, it's um, it's very much a a, a matter of taste. Mm-hmm. Although I would think that that sort of the sort of wallpaper music, or muzak, which you know, which one often hears probably doesn't do much for, for anybody. <laughs> yeah.
2: It's true, it's true. Or, or, you know, you think of the U.S. assaulting uh, Noriega when he was in his compound with Van Halen.
4: Yeah, well that's intriguing. Yeah. No, the, the, um, the music has sometimes been used as a, as a sort of an assault weapon in that way.
2: Oh, it makes sense in some ways because we, we to get back to Clive when you were talking about i mean the thing that was so moving about his story is that this music brought him back to life, and the only other thing that that he would remember in between these uh, you know every second seven seconds the amnesia was his wife. you know he knew yeah. he loved this woman and he had this connection, and he would say hello to her sometimes ten times in the course of an hour long visit because he forgot she was there, but every time there was this deep love and this joy to see this woman. Could not remember his children's names, but but knew this. So it, it puts music, you know, on the level of the deepest love of your life.
4: Yeah. Well, I think it belongs there.
2: Well, let's talk more about the downside, since we are critics. You, you right. address uh, brainworms <laughs> and this concept of a, getting a song. I've always called it an earworm. After the uh, yeah.
4: Well, well, I, um, that's the proper name. I I, I just called it a brainworm because I'm a neurologist. But but really. Uh, gotcha. they're, Earworms
2: So how does this work How is it that we can listen to You know Lollipop By uh, <laughs> By Little Wayne and, and we hate the song Intellectually And yet it's stuck in my head All the time I can't get it out
4: Well, um, I mean, for some reason, and this seems to occur with with virtually everyone, the the musical parts of the brain, if I can put it that way, and and there's no one musical center in the brain. They're like a dozen different systems in the brain which contribute pitch and rhythm and melody and other things. But the musical parts of the brain seem very very prone to, to echo and to repetition, much more than anything else. I mean, I don't think one gets visual repetitions in the same way and probably not as much in the way of of verbal repetitions. But um, I I think we're all very prone to musical repetition and of, of an involuntary sort. Usually there's a fairly short segment, like 15 or 20 seconds. It's usually not a whole song or a whole piece but a segment which which goes round and round in a sort of circle. Mm. And one can even demonstrate this sort of thing happening. You can visualize the brain and almost see an earworm going round and round. And they're often not easy to stop. And as you say, one, one may hate it, one may despise it, one may be embarrassed by it. One will sort of jump up and down and scream and have a shower. And it may be very difficult to stop. Sometimes you can, sometimes completing the piece or singing, singing it will get rid of it, mm-hmm. but not always.
2: Well, and there was a positive side to that concept, too. I mean, you write about the ability to remember music. I'm sort of paraphrasing, but but a piece of music you love, you can almost put the coin in the jukebox in your head and sum it up, and it, it will play in your head as if you were listening to it. I mean, this explains why people will go see the Rolling Stones today. I mean, what they're really hearing in their heads is like the Rolling Stones that they loved in 1968 – you know, mm-hmm. and what they have now is this simulacrum, you know, of seventy-year-old guys on stage just doing it for the money. But it sort of explained to me how it is that how I could be at, at a concert and have a completely different experience than somebody else.
4: Yeah, well, well, um, um, musical memory, and, and especially, I think, involuntary musical memory is is tends to be very, very strong, and uh, and even sometimes in relatively non-musical people, sometimes one can summon this up voluntarily, but sometimes it comes as an earworm and and sometimes just as as a nice musical companion and very occasionally if one is in trouble as a a real hallucination.
3: Well, you know, there is... I mean, you you talk about the mood-altering properties of Music Doctor, and and what about the arguments that some parents' groups have made over the years? Uh, The Parents' Music Resource Center, most famously in the 80s, was talking about certain records being able to influence behavior of uh, teenagers. You know, a, a, a Slayer record, for example, says, you know, Uh, starts talking about Satanism and going out and killing people, and uh, and this is going to influence the way the kids behave. Do you buy into that?
4: Well, I don't think music itself means anything, but it may be if it's associated with – I mean, um, for example, um, one of my patients, a man who was losing his hearing, he had hallucinations, and among his hallucinations were Nazi marching songs. Which he had heard as a boy growing up in Germany, which horrified him. Now, the it's not the music itself, but the words and, and actions which go with the music, mm-hmm. which you know, which, which which made these hideous and dangerous. And so it would be with with a sort of satanic records. And I, I think there's a huge difference, if you want, between pure music or instrumental music and music which has words to it or actions associated with it. I don't think that music as such has any particular meaning or message.
2: Yeah. And, of course, this is like 2001, A Clockwork Orange. You could, you could take any cheerful, upbeat piece of music and put bad associations in somebody's head about oh, oh, it.
4: Oh, oh, oh sure. Yeah, 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 and A Clockwork Orange she's turned on by Beethoven's Ninth. Of course, in 2001, it's, it's Hal singing A Bicycle Made for Two, which is my favorite song.
2: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and you are a music fan. Is that what led you, you – you fell in love with music early on. Is that what has led you to bring it into your science?
4: I, I think probably so. I, I was one of the less musical of a, of a musical family. But um, my, uh, my mama used to sing A Bicycle Made for Two, which she had learned in the 1890s when bicycles made for two were just appearing for the first time. Mm. And um, it, um, in, in fact, now, now I'm afraid it's, that's going through my mind as an earworm. <laughs> but, but, uh, but, 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 but I declined to sing it on radio. No
5: man, but you look sweet Upon the sea of a bicycle built for two
3: That was Oliver Sacks speaking to us back in 2007. Oliver Sacks died on August 30th of this year. And now we want to hear from you. What are your memories of Oliver Sacks and his work? Have you found music to have any surprising effects on the mind? Give us a call at 888-859-1800. Next, we go back to school. That's in a minute on sound opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. But you look sweet upon the
5: seat of a bicycle built for two.
6: Yes, I remember well being down in front of Casey's, down on that old brown wooden stoop. And I remember that it was on a summer's evening. Yes, sir, we formed a real merry group. I can just see those boys and girls together. And you know we'd sing and waltz while Tony <laughs> uh, Tony played the organ on the sidewalks of New York. All together now.
0: Sound Opinions is supported by Goose Island, the brewers of Next Coast IPA, 312 Urban Wheat Ale and Bourbon County Stout. Pairing beer and music since 1988, they believe it's always best to listen critically and enjoy responsibly. Goose Island Beer Company, Chicago, Illinois.
2: Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim Dirigatis, I'm here with Greg Codd, and we are about to celebrate... Going Back to School. It's actually a mixed celebration for me, Greg. Uh, Yeah, my daughter is off at school, but I'm back at school, too. I teach at Columbia College, Chicago. Sure is nice to have the kids out of the house. Yeah,
3: every parent counts down those last days of summer, right? You know, time to have some free time for once. You know, the kids are in the playground running around shouting,
2: Yay! (laughs) Parents are at home saying, Yay! (laughs) We did this show once before in 2008. There are many great rock and roll songs about school. You can go back and listen to the first installment at soundopinions.org but we've got some fresh picks and as always we're trying not to be too obvious, right? I'm going to start with one of the innovators of rock and roll, a legend. Sometimes we don't get to play these 50s giants as often as we'd like to on Sound Opinions. But Jerry Lee Lewis, when he uh, recorded the title song for the 1958 movie High School Confidential, as always, there is that lascivious and mischievous sneer. Uh, but there's a great story behind this song. You know, uh, High School Confidential, typical 50s you know, delinquents in school kind of movie. And Jerry Lee and his touring band were trucked out to California to set up on the back of a flatbed truck to lip-sync the the, uh, the, the title song that they'd already recorded at the famous Sun Studios. They don't lip-sync very well. You, you mm-hmm. can just tell they're up to trouble. They're probably drunk. Uh, they're, they're up to no good. right? And the song itself, it is not so innocent. You know, this notion of the high school hop. Jerry Lee starts it out by saying, open up, honey, it's your love a boy me that's knocking right (laughs) and he's gonna keep hopping he's gonna keep bopping he's gonna people forget I think we think of these 50s rockers as you know just in the rock and roll hall of fame Mm -hmm. and boring and dull Like Jerry Lee is still more of a troublemaker than you name any 10 gangster rappers or metalheads or punks today you know this guy was trouble and I love it this is a way to start the school year Jerry Lee Lewis High School Confidential on Sound Opinions
5: up a honey, get your love, boy, me, but to knock in. Why don't you listen to me, sugar? All the cats at the high school, rockin'. Honey, get your boppin' shoes for the juice buck blow the fuse. Everybody hoppin', everybody's boppin', boppin' at the high school, hop. Huh? the high school hop Taking the high school hop the high school hop Rocking at the high school hop Well, hey, everybody hopping hey, Everybody's at the high school hop Come on, little baby, let's rock a little bit tonight Ooh, let's get the sugar Let's shake it up tonight Well, hey, my heart a beat the rhythm And my feet are moving smooth and alive Hey, well, bopping at the high school hop, bumping at the high school hop, we're shaking at the high school hop, we're moving at the high school hop. Everybody bopping, everybody rocking, we're bopping at the high school hop. Now let's go. Baby, I'm going to give you some good news Look at here, sweet mama, left the burn hey, a ballpark, shoot Yeah, my heart can beat the rhythm, my soul is singing the blues Well, I'm popping at the high school hop I'm popping at the high school hop huh? Jumping at the high school huh? hop
2: Jerry Lee Lewis not only tinkling those ivories but assaulting them. High School Confidential. Greg, what's your first back to school pick?
3: You know, you talk about uh, bad boys from the 50s. I want to talk about another one, Larry Williams. This guy isn't nearly as well known as Jerry Lee Lewis or uh, Larry Williams' pal, Little Richard. But, you know, he was on the periphery of that wild man scene of the 50s, so much so because he was uh, he was incorrigible and he was writing a rock and roll that seemed to be a little wilder and a little more free and a little more chaotic than uh, even Jerry Lee Lewis was. The song I'm going to play called Bad Boy was later covered by the Beatles. This wasn't even a top 40 hit in the U.S., because Larry Williams was, as I said, somewhat on the fringe of that scene. But the Beatles were big connoisseurs of American R&B. They loved Little Richard, and they found a treasure trove of great recordings when they discovered Larry Williams. They covered a bunch of his songs, including the one I'm going to play. Others included Dizzy Miss Lizzie and Slow Down. He also wrote Boney Maroney. Short fat Fanny, high school dance. I mean, these were <laughs> these were prized by R and B connoisseurs. So the song "Bad Boy" is basically the story of a juvenile delinquent. Every school's got a few of those, right? And he's basically mocking and at the same time stoking. The outrage of those who thought that rock and roll was going to burn down Western civilization in the 50s. He's basically, if only it had. Basically making fun of those people. You know, and, and, and this kid, of course, he doesn't want to go to school. He's doing all the bad things. He's getting thrown in detention all the time. He's both celebrating and mocking this kid and, and, and the outrage that he's causing. No, this kid isn't going to burn down Western civilization. Someday he's going to be a rock and roller just like me. Yep. So Larry Williams with Bad Boy from 1958 on Sound Opinions.
5: A belly. He buys every rock and roll book on the magazine stand. He's a bad boy. Junior, behave yourself.
3: That's Larry Williams with Bad Boy from 1958, one of my favorite back-to-school songs about a juvenile delinquent. If you at home listening have a favorite back-to-school song, give us a call at 888-859-1800. Jim, what's your next pick? Well, Greg, you know, I think the best
2: all-time I'm out of school and done with it forever song is Alex Cooper's School's Out for the Summer, right? But that's too obvious. We're going to go deeper. I think the second best I'm out of school song ever is School Days, a 1977 single by The Runaways. The Runaways were a hugely influential, at least among musicians, band formed in 1975 on the West Coast. Joan Jett was uh, the famous lead vocalist. Cherry Curry, who went on to be quite a heavy metal guitar star, was the guitarist. The idea of an all-female band in the mid-'70s was Far different from today. These women broke serious ground. They've been immortalized in several books, movies, documentaries. A lot of controversy lately because their guru, Svingali, Kim Fowley, has been accused of some some very bad behavior with the young women in the band. But School Days is about being 18 and finally done with school. Used to be the wild one, Joan Jet sings. Hated class, only lived for fun. I'm mean and got my schemes at the crazy <laughs> age of eighteen. So this one I'm dedicating to all the seniors out there who, you know, you are so close. The end is in sight. They talk about senioritis, you know. Soon it'll be over. Soon it really will. Trust me. From the third album, first single from that record by the Runaways, "School Days" on Sound Opinions.
3: From the Runaways, one of Jim DeRigatis' picks is a great back-to-school song. Jim, I'm going to stick with that theme. A band heavily influenced by the Runaways, the Donnas, yes. a, an all-female group that all the members, all the original members were born in 1979. I think the Runaways at that point were, were no more. We're done, yeah. Yeah, but they went on to make a half dozen pretty good records in the 90s. And the Donnas got together, they started playing together in in garages and basements when they were just kids. I mean, they were 11, 12, 13 years old, playing together, writing songs, and they were writing a lot of songs about their experiences in high school. And this continued throughout their career. The song I'm going to play, New Kid at School, from their final album in 2007, I think everybody was in either in that position or knew someone who was in that position and you never wanted to be that new kid in school <laughs> because everybody was looking at you the yeah. first week or two checking you out what kind, what group is this kid going to fall into is he going to be a stoner is he going to be a jock is he going to be the pretty boy is he going to be the you know the A plus honor roll student you know we're categorizing you so you know you cannot escape the eyes of the school upon you you know a
2: big piece of wisdom we ought to pass on is that the entire (laughs) rest of your life kids
3: is the breakfast club by John Hughes go see
2: it that's life
3: right right people define you by what you were in high school right so the Donnas are checking out this new kid in school and they kind of like this guy you Mm. know Uh, they're thinking hey maybe I want to you know hook up with this guy down the road here so this is basically that first flush of of meeting someone new in school and forming that quick assessment of who this kid is and whether you want to spend time with him. New kid at school from the Donnas on Sound Opinions. kid in school by the donnas that's a good back to school pick greg thanks jim you and i are going to be back at the schoolyard when we come back on sound opinions from wbez chicago and prx and give you some more of our favorite back to school songs Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott with Jim DiRigatis. We're all going back to school this month, folks, uh, and we are celebrating. I think that's the correct word for that uh, moment for in certain parents' lives anyway, celebrating the return to school of their children. And, uh, Jim, you're next up with a great back-to-school song. What's it going to be? Greg, let's face it,
2: most kids' favorite part of school is recess, and their favorite <laughs> locale at school, no, not the library as much as we'd like to think so, it's the schoolyard, Right. Every time I see Wes Anderson's The Royal Tannenbaums, probably my favorite movie of all time, I could be flipping, I just still watch it for the 100th time, the 112th time, right? And the highlight of it for me is when Paul Simon's Me and Julio Down by the Schoolyard is used on the soundtrack – of grandpa getting in trouble with the kids by riding along on the back of a garbage truck. It's just the perfect <laughs> merger of film and music, and the song is great as well. For a couple of reasons, Simon himself said it was, quote, a bit of inscrutable Doggerel, nobody knows what Mama Pajama is mad at the kids for, <laughs> what crime they committed, why it was against the law, why the trouble is coming down you know there 's an innocence to the song i don 't think they were doing much more than sneaking a cigarette out in the schoolyard you know? <laughs> but but who knows i don 't know Simon has always refused to answer. I also think the tune is important because it came uh, in seventy two from simon 's self titled solo album, and it sees him first going to South America. ...for some of the sounds that would become so integral to his later work... There's a wonderful use of the cueca, the Brazilian kind of friction drum that's often used in samba, played by Ertu Moreira, one mm-hmm. of the, like, a- as a drum geek, like, the greatest Latin percussionist of all time. So it's really one of the first cases of Simon beginning to look around the world for other sounds to incorporate into his great folk pop songwriting, because the tune is, like, indelibly catchy, but it's got this air of the exotic to it as well. Me and Julio, down by the schoolyard from 1972, Paul Simon on Sound Opinions.
6: The mama pajama rolled out of bed and she ran to the police station. When the papa found out, he began to shout and he started the investigation. It's against the law. It was against the law. Or what the mama saw. It was against the law. The mama looked down and spit on the ground Every time my name gets mentioned The papa said, oh, if I get that boy I'm gonna stick him in the house of detention Well, I'm on my way I don't know where I'm going I'm on my way I'm taking my time, but I don't know where Put by the if the queen of Corona See me and Julio down by the schoolyard See me a hújor, is Mama, take me away, but the press let the story leak Now when the radical preach come to get me released We are all on the color of Newsweek And I'm on my way I don't know where I'm going I'm on my way I'm taking my time, but I don't know where Goodbye, Rose see The Queen of Corona See me and Julio down by the school yard
2: Paul Simon hanging out, me and Julio down by the schoolyard. Greg, you got another back-to-school pick.
3: Absolutely, Jim. You know, earlier in the show we were talking about the Breakfast Club and this whole notion of, you know, people being typecast in high school right away and sort of becoming that for the rest of their lives, at least in the estimation of those people who knew them when. Belle and Sebastian, the great Scottish indie pop band, wrote a bunch of songs like that and about that subject on their debut album, Tiger Milk. The Brits and the Scots
2: just are obsessed with the (laughs) clicks at school. How many movies are there in that ilk and
3: songs? Well, you think it's going to be kind of a cliche, but Stuart Murdoch, the main songwriter in Belle and Sebastian, had this great feel for empathy. And it comes across in many of these songs. He always focuses on the sensitive kid, the outsider, the loner, the one who's being ignored or the one who's being mocked for being different and appreciates them for who they were. And I think for many reasons, but one of which probably was that Stewart felt that way himself when he was in school, you you know? know, he was that guy, just like Morrissey. This is one of my favorite songs that he wrote from that first album. It's called Expectations, and it's written from the perspective of a guy in a school, observing a young girl in that same school who's going through hell, she is arty, she is a little outside the norm. as he says, she's the one who makes life-size models of the velvet underground in clay <laughs> you know, and of course, right away, he's going to be smitten with her, right? But she's being mocked, you, know, for being different, unconventional, not fitting in. Nobody gets her except. Stewart And you know the, the beauty of the song Is in the chorus He basically says You know I'm the boy with the guitar And I want you To write a song So that I can sing it With you Hopefully in your band Someday And it's just kind of This like sweet sentiment About don't worry kid It's going to be okay You get through this We're going to be In a band together And we're going to Make all these people Look bad later on So it's Bell and Sebastian With expectations On sound opinions
7: Monday morning Wake up Knowing that you- Gotta go to school, tell your mum what to expect. She says it's right out of the blue. Do you wanna work at Devon Cause that's what they expect. Starting laundry and Doris is your supervisor. And the headset that you always wear, a queer one from the start. As you say, you wanna be remembered for your art. Your obsession gets you known throughout the school for being strange, making life-size models of the velvet underground in play. In the queue for lunch, they take the piss. You got no appetite. And the rumor is you never go with boys, and you are tight. So they trap you with a fork, you drop the tray and go bazard while you're cleaning up. Hey, you've been used, Are you come settle down, write a song, I'll sing along, soon you will know that you are sane, you're on top of the world again.
3: Ellen Sebastian with Expectations, one of my favorite songs for going back to school. Jim, you have one more pick. What's it going to be? Well, Greg, like I said earlier, we try to be
2: uh, not so obvious with these picks. Sometimes we're digging a little deeper for the story of the song being about school, if it's even not in the, uh, the title. And that is what Dolly Parton's Coat of Many Colors mm. is about. Now... This song from 71 is, you know, really about Dolly Parton wearing a coat of rags and patches that her mother sewed for her, much like Joseph's uh, amazing pre-Technicolor dream coat, right? The thing that really moves me, you were talking about empathy in Belle and Sebastian's song, is that Dolly goes to school in this coat. She is thrilled with this coat that her mother made by hand. It's made out of scraps of fabric because they're so poor. She gets to school and she thinks, you know, she's high from this coat. She's, she's on top of the world. And all the children start to laugh. I told them of the love my mama sewed in every stitch. I told them the story my mama told me while she sewed and how my coat of many colors was worth more than all their clothes. But still, the mean kids laugh at her. This coat really exists it is mm-hmm. in Dollywood right one of my on my bucket list I really want to go to Dollywood mm-hmm. someday right? yeah. and the other great story is is that Dolly was on tour with uh, the great uh, early 70s country star Porter Wagoner and she, she this the idea for the song came to her so she wrote it on the back of his dry cleaning receipt which he kept for years this became a huge hit he donated it that's in Dollywood too mm-hmm. it's right next to the coat. we got to get Dollywood to invite sound opinions down we've got to go down there anyway I love this this song. It's pure Dolly, vastly underrated. We've said this before as a songwriter. She was a huge talent. Coat of many colors on Sound Opinions.
8: Back through the years, I go wondering once again back to the seasons of my youth. I recall a box of rags that someone gave us and how my mama put the rags to you. There were rags of many colors But every piece was small And I didn't have a coat And it was away down in the fall Mama sewed the rags together So in every piece we loved She made my coat of many colors That I was so proud of As she sewed she told a story From the Bible she had read about a coat of many colors joseph wore and then she said perhaps this coat will bring you good luck and happiness and i just couldn't wait to wear it and mama blessed it with a kiss my coat of many colors that my mama made for I was rich as I could be In my coat of many colors My mama made for me
2: The immortal Dolly Parton, Coat of Many Colors. You know, kids, be yourself at school. That's the message. Don't be afraid
3: to be different. Cotton and I certainly were. <laughs> you you got one more pick, Greg. What is it? I, I love that song, Jim, and I'm going to stay on the country tip. You know, and I was kind of debating, is this song rock and roll enough for this show? It's more mainstream country, even more mainstream than than Dolly's song. But I think it really holds up. It's Harper Valley PTA from Jeannie C. Riley. Classic song. I applaud you. And, uh, you know, the whole song, you, you just get pulled into the song right away. It was written by Tom T. Hall, one of the great country songwriters of all time. And he was having uh, trouble placing the song. The, the, the singer he originally wrote it for didn't want to record it. But Jeannie C. Reilly, this young up-and-comer, said, you know, I'll, I'll take a shot at this song. And it ended up being a huge number one hit, not only on the country charts, but the pop charts as well, crossing over, selling millions of copies. And I think it struck a chord in the late 60s because here's this song about a, a young a junior high student bringing home a note from school, which basically was scolding her widowed mom for causing a disruption in the community. she's mm. Her skirts are too short, and she's flirting with the men, and, you know, we don't <laughs> think you should be acting like this around, you know, our kids in our school. And, and this note is signed from the Harper Valley PTA, the Parent-Teacher Association of the Mythical Harper Valley. You know, the next thing you know, the single mom, Marches into the next PTA meeting, which apparently is like the next day, and the PTA is of course shocked to see her there. And yeah. she starts going through a list of everybody in the PTA meeting about their little Pecadillos. conniving and yeah, you know yeah. their little little controversial habits, their drinking, and their womanizing and the things they're doing that aren't quite so socially straight and narrow. And uh, at the end of the song, one of the great kiss-off lines of all time this is just a little patent place and you're all harper valley hypocrites Mm. you know the way she delivers that line with kind of a straightforward there's no histrionics in the song just a straightforward delivery and it is just killer the way it comes across this song was adapted as a feminist anthem and i think it still holds up that way you listen to it now it still applies Great singers like Loretta Lynn, Dolly Parton, Mm -hmm. Norma Jean, Bobby Martin, Lynn Anderson. They all covered this song because they loved it. They embraced the message. You know, a single mom fighting for her rights against the moral police of a small town. (laughs) You got to love that. Jeannie C. Riley, Harper Valley PTA on Sound Opinions.
9: I want to tell you all a story. I got a note here from the Harper Valley PTA Well, the note said, Mrs. Johnson You're wearing your is way too high It's reported you've been drinking And are running around with men and going wild And we don't believe you ought to be a Bringing up your little girl this way Signed by the Secretary Harper Valley PTA Well, it happened that the PTA was gonna meet that very afternoon And they were sure surprised when Mrs. Johnson wore her mini skirt into the room And as she walked up to the blackboard, I can still recall the words she had to say Shades all will completely down Well, Mr. Harper couldn't be here Cause he stayed too long at Kelly's Bar again And if you smell Shirley Thompson's breath You'll find she's had a little nip of gin And then you have the nerve to tell me You think that as a mother I'm not fit Well, this is just a little pain
2: Dini C. Riley, Harper Valley PTA, nice pick, Greg. You can see all of our picks from this year's Back to School show at soundopinions.org. You can revisit the 2008 show, and you can call the hotline and suggest your own back-to-school classics. 888-859-1800. Greg, what do we get
3: on the show next week? Next week, Jim, we have a band that I think you might have heard of, Wire, with a live performance. As always, Sound Opinions is produced by Jason
2: Saltana, Robin Lin, Evan Chung, and Alex Claiborne.
7: I my book, I
3: on Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So now it's time to hear what you have to say.
1: New messages. Hi, guys. This is Ben. I'm calling from Ben Lomond, California. And I love you guys. I think you guys are great. But sometimes I have to wonder when I listen to your show just how much those sojourns to South by Southwest might be frying your brains or something. Because your recent in-studio performance by this band called Bully to me was a perfect example of a questionable band at best that... Gets a recording contract immediately after signing with a major label, no less, and has all the earmarks of many bands that came before them, notably Sonic Youth, The Pixies, loud, quiet, loud, couple throat tearing vocals. formulaic. I cannot understand how they could be any form of a sensation at a festival like South by Southwest. Jim, your, your enthusiasm. I just don't get it. I love the fact that its leader is an audio engineer. That's great, but I mean, is this because she is just a very young woman in an unusual position of being an audio engineer? I don't know, fellas. <laughs>
6: My name is Anna Marie Booth. I'm in San Francisco. I just listened to the program uh, with the Isley Brothers. Amazing. My artist who has major longevity is Johnny Mathis. Johnny Mathis this year is 80 years old. He is phenomenal. I saw him recently in San Francisco sing with the San Francisco Symphony. So Johnny Mathis for sure.
5: The moment that your lips meet mine, chances are you think my heart's your
6: Second person who is still going, and I hope is going to remain healthy, is Mariah Carey. Phenomenal singer. Through her personal ups and downs, nevertheless, she is a superstar In terms of writing And in terms of singing
9: We was one, babe For a moment in
0: time And it seemed everlasting that you would always be mine And you wanna be free So I let you fly Cause I know in my heart, babe i love will never die no more,
1: Great show Hi, Hi, my name's Tony. I'm from Milwaukee. I had the honor of driving Ernie Isley around during his appearance at Summerfest in Milwaukee. And it was great to hear firsthand from him for an hour while we were stuck in a traffic jam about the history of the Isley Brothers, especially the time when Jimi Hendrix joined the band. Thank you for having him on there. The Isley Brothers are truly a hidden gem in music. Not too many people know about him, but let me tell you something about Ernie's guitar playing. Ernie's guitar playing, he has to be one of the top five guitarists of all time. If not, he's truly underrated.